Psalm 139, for the director of music of David, a psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, Even darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? and abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it's great uh, to be with you tonight. I am preaching uh, Psalm 139 again, partly because uh, the most consistent... I've been reading my old school reports, and uh, the most consistent comment is, could do better. (laughs) Which I always thought was a very positive comment, because there was no evidence that I actually did better, I just could do better. It's a happy thought. Well, uh, this is a psalm, of course, with, uh, with great encouragement and great hope. And we looked at the kind of cheery, positive side of the psalm last Sunday. Can I just remind you of the outline of the psalm? Uh, the first part is addressed to God. You've searched me and known me. We're constantly and fully known by God. No one knows you like God knows you. God knows you more than you know yourself, more deeply than you know yourself. Where can I flee from your presence? We're constantly in God's presence. Wherever we try to go, God is there before us. You created me, and we are, in the vivid words of the psalm, constantly sustained and ordered by God, your Eyes saw my unformed body. 
all the days ordained for me were written in your book before any of them came to be. But then the two prayers, the two requests in the psalm are very striking, aren't they? They are, if only you would slay the wicked and in the meantime, search me and know my heart. Well, you may have found this psalm to be really good news on your darkest day. It is a psalm of great comfort. But there are a few hints in the psalm that it's also a psalm of discomfort. Uh, verse 5, for example, you hem me in behind and before, you lay your hand upon me. That, that sounds a bit too close for comfort, doesn't it? That is, I can't make a move without you directing me. That's a bit nerve-wracking, isn't it? What about free will? Or the remarkable question in verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I go from your presence? Where can I flee from your presence? You might remember Jonah famously fled from the presence of God because he didn't like what God was asking him to do. Uh, verse 8, if I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I go down to the depths, you're there also. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, that's if you get up early and face toward the east, by the way. If I settle on the far side of the sea, that's from the Holy Land to the west. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Well, this might be bad news for those who are trying to run away from God. And one of the disadvantages of being a minister is if you stay to the end of a party, you're always cornered by a person who's worked out you are a minister and wants to tell you about their early life in the church and why they've been running away from God ever since then. It's a nice way to end an evening, really. Um, <laughs> one, one tries to look sympathetic. Uh, uh, that's got a mixture of pensive, sympathetic and hopeful without being too committed anyway, any of those ways. Uh, but of course the reality is that God is the inescapable God. You just can't get away from God. Because the only place you can ever be is in the universe he has created. You can't escape God. And you can't even, I mean, this is so frustrating, you can't even escape God in death. I happen to live near the General Cemetery, so handy for my next move. And um, there was a sign saying, um, unique offer. Um, uh, superior graves. And I thought, that's the kind of thing I want, a superior grave running hot water and, you know, perhaps some music or something like that. It said, then it said limited release. Well, that was a bit discouraging because it might mean you could have it for five, five weeks or something and then you're out. But imagine you'd you, you, you were an unbeliever and you'd paid for a decent grave planning to be uh, there until your dissolution. Then all of a sudden, there's, uh, there's somebody rapping on the, on the, on the uh, coffin. Uh, you say, oh, who is it? Oh, I'm an angel. 
it's the time for your resurrection. I don't want to be resurrected. Too bad it's going to happen. I don't believe in God. That doesn't matter. You get a resurrection as well. It's a free pass. So even in death, there's no escape from God. And that, I think, is a slightly unnerving reality for people in the 21st century to face. For the simple reason that we think that we live in a world of our own creation. That we, particularly me, I am the centre of my world and I control my world. When I was a uh, working in Durham, we had a student, uh, an undergraduate student who came to, uh, to the university to do a course and he was going to share a room with another student he discovered when he arrived and that was a bit unnerving. So he got there first, so he got all his books out and he, he lined up the books to mark his side of the room so when his uh, roommate arrived he would know uh, the path he could not, you know, the, the wall he could not go over because this is my territory. And we, we, as a society, are very aware of our being at the centre of our personal space, aren't we? And there are good reasons for that. We don't want to be abused and so on. But uh, we've taken it a bit far, I think. So uh, I'm grateful to C.S. Lewis uh, for this example. But if you, if you went outside and looked up, which would be very unwise because you'd get a, a face full of uh, rain, but anyway, if you did, you'd think you, you were looking up into what we call space, which is a fairly insulting term, isn't it, for part of the world God's made, space. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> oh, so you made some more space, God. Well done. Yeah, we needed more, more space. And you could even think of outer space. But the, the, the assumption is, of course, that the, we on the earth are at the centre of the universe and all the rest is space. Now, I do remember enough from school to know that actually we are not the centre of the universe. But we feel as if we are. We act as if we are. We even talk about discovering stars and asteroids. Well, God's actually known about them for quite a while. You know, he, there's no surprise for God. And I think one of the most difficult things uh, to learn as a human being is that, if I can say this to you, please don't take it personally. Well, yes, do take it personally. But you are not the centre of the universe. Sorry about that. The space is already taken by God. And the question really is not whether you will allow God some room in your life, perhaps a little bit over there or over there. <laughs> but how can I live in a universe which belongs to God in which he has made me a place to live and given me a body to live in and given me every day and night that I experience. It's not a matter of making God a part of your life or even making God the centre of your life. It is accepting that you are not the centre of your life and you can't decide who's the centre of your life. 
because God is God and you are not. And I think even for seasoned Christians like myself, that's a discovery I need to keep on making. So we, at this time of year, ask how are you going and stuff like that, and I have plenty of stories to tell people. I had a cold last week. That's very dramatic for a man. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, a, a major event, really. Uh, I smashed into my nephew's car on Christmas Day. That was, well, you know, interesting, I suppose. Uh, I, I, don't worry. It was, there was nothing frightening about it. I, I specialize in slow-motion collisions. <laughs> and I was very carefully parking just behind his car, and I just happened to take off one of the back lights and things like that. Well, he's got another one. I mean, who cares about that? <laughs> but if, if I ask you, how's your year going, you, you might say, oh, it's going really well. Or, well, actually, I lost a tooth recently, but other than that, I'm doing okay. But you see, we evaluate our lives about our happiness with our life, not with God's happiness with our life. We are those who pursue happiness and not holiness. And to pursue holiness, you see, is to pursue God's pleasure with our lives, not our pleasure with our lives. So, in a way, I think the psalm's a bit of a threat. You've searched me, Lord, you know me. You know when I sit, when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious. To me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they'd be outnumber the grains of sand. When I'm awake, I'm still with you. Whether this is good news or bad news, the next words are shocking, aren't they? The first request, if only you, God, would slay the wicked. One thing I do remember from my childhood is you must not pick at your food. You have to eat everything on your plate. 
It's like that, isn't it, when you're listening to somebody. They're talking to you. You can't just edit out the bits you don't particularly like. You may not like them, but you have to take them into account, don't you? If it's going to be a real conversation, a real meeting. We have to accept people as they are, not as we would like them to be. It's a bit like being married, really. You have to accept the person you've married as they are, not an, an imaginary version of the person you've married. So it is with God. We can't say to God, but I like that aspect of your character, but that is not very attractive. There's no way to treat God and no way to treat his word. So why are these words so disturbing for us? Well, let me talk first about why they're disturbing for us. 21st century people. First of all, we in the West, I think, don't cope with the presence of evil and we try to avoid dealing with it. When we meet evil, we are embarrassed, first of all. And our natural instinct is to try and pretend that nothing is happening. Uh, that's partly because a humanistic democracy has an optimistic view of human nature. We must be optimistic if we trust ordinary people like us to vote. Goodness, that's very optimistic, isn't it? Think that we'll make, the people will make a wise choice. And we in the humanist West are generally unprepared for intentional evil. We, we think when something bad happens, there must have been an accident. Uh, or it's a result of in it, in insufficient education or insufficient scientific discovery or something like that. It's like the, um, the massacre at uh, in Tasmania, Port Arthur, thank you very much. Uh, the, when, when the accused was put in the newspaper, they, they kept on changing his eyes so he looked as if he was uh, slightly insane. The, the, the idea was that only an insane person would go around killing people. That was a very comfortable thought, that there was insanity behind this evil. But as a matter of fact, he was not and is not insane, a highly intelligent person, but intentionally evil. And we in the West find that very hard to cope with. And most of all, I think, we underestimate the serious significance of deliberate and continued sin against God. We, we recognize very quickly uh, sin against other people, uh, and we read it in our newspapers every day. <laughs> in, indeed, curiously enough, uh, that is our news, is the presence of evil in our world. Isn't that interesting? Why is that, why is that news for us? Very curious thing, isn't it? Because we don't expect it, presumably. But although we're aware of the ways in which 
we experience the evil of other people and uh, none of us will get through life without experiencing that in some kind of way. We underestimate the significance of deliberate and continued sin against God, rebellion against God. We think, oh, in the words of the philosopher, he will forgive, that's his job. And please notice that the, uh, the wicked whom the psalmist David wants God to destroy are those who are uh, bloodthirsty, verse 19, that is, they're killing people. Uh, they speak of you, that is God, with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name, that is, they're attacking God, misinterpreting God. Uh, they hate God, verse uh, 21, and they are in rebellion against God. So, uh, this, this is not people who are ignorant of God and accidentally sin against God. This is uh, not accidental sinning or ignorant sinning or occasional sinning. It's, it's people who are resolutely and constantly and violently opposed to God and also opposed to God's people. We find it hard to imagine that sin and hard to take it into account. Let's look at uh, the Old Testament then and see if there's something uh, that we can learn which will help us to understand these verses. I was, uh, one of my Christmas presents was uh, a 900-piece jigsaw puzzle, second hand, <laughs> and I was told that there was one piece missing. <laughs> That's a bit depressing, really, because even if I spent... 49 years trying to put it together, it would never be complete. <laughs> but what I'm trying to do here is to put this little jigsaw puzzle piece in a broader picture, okay? Look, look at the Old Testament first, then the New Testament. So Old Testament, first point, the king had the responsibility of imposing justice and punishment. The psalm is, as we helpfully heard, a psalm of David. And why, while we personally don't want to be responsible for justice and punishment, uh, it's important in our society that somebody is responsible for it. Uh, and that was actually the king's job. I saw a sign in the local park uh, by the uh, North Carlton Anarchist Society, which I think is probably a fairly small group of people. But anyway, there, there's, there's the sign was, uh, we'll destroy government, uh, big business and government. And I thought, well, if you did destroy big business and government, uh, particularly government, uh, actually the society wouldn't function very well. You need someone to decide what's, what side of the road we're going to drive on and someone to decide the speed limits and all those kind of things. So, although we don't like doing these kind of things, somebody has to do it, and in the Old Testament, the king did. Next point, God constantly warns that he will not be defeated but will defeat the wicked, the bloodthirsty people who speak against him, misuse his name, hate him and rebel against him. If your world is full of people who are wicked, bloodthirsty, speaking against God, misusing his name, hating him and rebel against him, you'll have the question, is God going to win or will they win? It's a reasonable question. And the answer, the answer in the Old Testament is very clearly that God will win. God is not defeated by evil. 
we are easily defeated by evil. People are easily destroyed by evil. You can see it in our world today. It's happening every day all around our world. The evidence is that evil people win, isn't it? 21st century, that's it. How comforting to know that God will not be defeated by human evil. Human, humans are powerful, but they can't defeat God. That is good news, is it not? Rex thinks it is. That's encouraging. Thank you, Rex. Here, David is not acting against these people, but he's actually asking God to deal with them. Uh, these, uh, these verses in Psalms like this are often called curses, but please notice that David is not uttering a curse. A curse is something, something uh, which you utter and by itself is, has a power of destruction. But David is not cursing people. That's, it's a common thing in our world today in various animist societies, uh, including, of course, here in Australia. But that's not what's happening here. David is asking God to do something. He's not doing the cursing. He's asking God to execute his justice. Let's move to the New Testament. As in the Old Testament, God continues to be kind to evil people. As Jesus teaches in Matthew 5, God sends, the Father sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous and calls us to love our enemies. So this verse is no excuse for us to go around hating people and attacking people. But even more strikingly in the New Testament, God is in the business of making his enemies into his friends. That's why Jesus died on the cross, because we were his enemies, and Jesus died so we could be God's friends. Paul writes in Romans, if we were, when we, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And no wonder Paul appeals to the Corinthians, be reconciled to God. So our word to God's enemies, people like ourselves, as we were until we were reconciled by Christ, is be reconciled to God. And I love saying to people, you know, you may have taken a million steps away from God, it's only one step to turn around and come back to him. Isn't that extraordinary? Because God loves welcoming people to himself. He loves embracing people who repent. He loves rejoicing in them and loving them and caring for them and honoring them. That's the kind of God we believe in, a God who loves turning enemies into friends. I wonder who was praying when Saul was on the Damascus Road going to kill some more Christians. I imagine, I don't know if anybody was praying. I imagine they thought, oh no, here comes Saul, we're in trouble. They might have prayed, strike him dead, Lord. But what did God do? He converted him. Isn't that amazing? Shows how dangerous horse riding is, I think. <laughs> And we are not to take revenge. 
Romans 12. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it's written, and this is a quote from Deuteronomy, where God says, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, this is really good practical information, you know, because one day, I'm sure in your life, you'll meet somebody who wishes you evil and does evil to you. It's pretty normal human experience. You'll wonder why it's happening. Did I deserve this? No, you didn't. Why are they doing it? Just they like, they like doing things which are evil. And how will you respond? Well, Paul's instruction is don't take revenge. It's so, it's so easy to do, isn't it? I was talking to somebody this morning about revenge. Uh, and, you know, when, when the other person uh, pulls in in front of you when you're driving, it is tempting, if you're me anyway, uh, then to teach them a lesson, isn't it? But that kind of competitive uh, judicial driving is perhaps not the best way to manage uh, a safe life on a motorway, is it? No, taking revenge is not a good idea. Though, uh, that doesn't preclude, I think, if you're in danger, uh, asking for protection from the police or whoever is around to help you. But what we have to do is to learn to trust God's justice in God's time. And I just love uh, the words in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, where Peter's writing about Jesus' unjust suffering. And he says of Jesus, these are beautiful words, aren't they? He trusted himself to him who judges justly. Isn't that beautiful? There's no clearer example of unjust suffering in the whole universe than the death of Jesus. What did Jesus do? Trusted himself to him who judges justly. Wonderful example for us. But we also need to know from the New Testament that those who oppose Christ are his enemies. Jesus said, whoever is not with me for, that's right, for me, is against me. And Paul writes, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. So it's not just enemies of God we should be thinking about, but who are Christ's enemies? Who are those who are opposing Christ's plan for the world, Christ's work in the world, Christ's desire for this world, for our society? They're his enemies because Christ is a saviour, and they are the destroyers. And Paul explains this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that Jesus currently rules over his enemies, for Christ must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we often might think of the question, what is Christ doing now? Well, the answer is, he's in heaven at the Father's right hand, praying for us. He's in heaven as our saviour, as our great high priest. So we know our salvation is secure. But uh, we also find in the New Testament that he's waiting for all his enemies to be put under his feet. That is, uh, uh, to be subject to him. And the last enemy is death. And then, of course, when, uh, when he returns, uh, all his enemies will be destroyed. 
therefore, those who oppose God will suffer on the last day. Jesus warned his disciples, <coughs> Matthew 10, 38, be afraid. He keeps on, a little section, he keeps on saying, don't be afraid. But then he says, be afraid of the one that is God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, dear friends, every time we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. Every time we pray, come Lord Jesus, we are praying for God's just future when Christ returns, his enemies will be judged and his saints vindicated and rewarded. So, the prayer in Psalm 139 is shocking to read, except that we pray the same prayer every time we pray, come Lord Jesus. Or we pray to our Father, your kingdom come. We're praying for God's perfect justice. I look forward to that day. I think of those who even at this moment are being martyred for their faith. Men and women and children, even at this moment in this world, facing death for the sake of Jesus. Is that the end of the story? No, it is not. They'll be honoured and vindicated and glorified when the Lord Jesus returns. How wonderful. But the other side of that is that those who've killed them will be judged for what they have done. Uh, one missionary was, uh, John Payton, I think it was, in uh, New Hebrides, was being uh, threatened death by the local chief. And he said, if you kill me, God will judge you. It was effective, apparently. It's a great, remember that, could be useful one day. If you kill me, God will judge you. So perhaps it's not as shocking a prayer as we might have thought. And to now return from our jigsaw puzzle to Psalm 139. Please notice the significance of the last prayer in the light of what we've just looked at. If only you, you Lord, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's all very well to pray that God will defeat his enemies. But there are remnants of enmity in our hearts and lives. And our danger is to see the speck in the eyes of others and to miss the plank in our own. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. It's in a very appropriate response, isn't it, to the first verse of the psalm. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. Search me and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me 
and lead me in the way everlasting. A great prayer for you to pray every day this year. I'd like us to stand and we'll pray this prayer together, the last two verses of the psalm. I'll read out the words, I'll pray the words, and then would you repeat them after me? We turn to God to pray. Search me, God, and know my heart. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name.